You guys are dismissed to head on down or up, depending on which way you're going this week. For those of you that are uh, new with us today or maybe haven't been in here in a few weeks, um, we have been focusing this fall on a series um, on our intimacy with Christ. And last week we, we took a look at a verse in Psalm 63 where King David wrote, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. And we took a look more in depth last week at another psalm that David wrote, Psalm 27, where he's talking about just all of these troubling circumstances going on in his life, very vivid descriptions of, of what his circumstances were, things like oppressors and enemies and betrayal, and we listed several things that were going on. And in the midst of, of those circumstances, David prays and he asks God for one thing. If you remember from Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. David could pray for the Lord's presence above anything else that he could have asked for at that time because he had come to the point in his life where he believed to the very core of who he was that, that God's love was better than anything else he could ask for, better than his circumstances changing, better than the, the power and the privilege of being the king of Israel better than any military victory he'd had out on the battlefield, better than his marriage, better than his deepest friendships. And so it became the sole desire of his heart. And I don't know about you, but I really struggle with that statement, to really live it out, to really believe and live like God's love is better than anything this world has to offer. In another Psalm of David, Psalm 84, he wrote this in verses 1 and 2. It says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Howard Baker in his book, The One Thing, you have that quote? Says this, there is yearning, do we have that? Yeah, go to the next one. There you go. It says this, there is yearning and longing there. From where does this rumbling desire arise? It erupts from the vision of the goodness and joy of life in the presence of the Lord. The royal court would have been the place of supreme beauty, art, and opulence, as well as power. It was the place to be. Now imagine the courts of the Lord. What soul wouldn't yearn to be in the place of infinite goodness, beauty, truth, and power? This is the throne room that followers of Jesus are invited to boldly enter. Can you see it? Before you will desire it, you have to see it. Look at those last two sentences again. I don't know about you, but I lack vision when it comes to having a picture of, of goodness and joy in the presence of the Lord sometimes. And that lack of vision severely hampers my desire. And to be honest, I routinely get duped into the faulty visions of the good life that we can have here on this earth. And I see some of my friends or even some strangers who have bigger houses, 
and nicer cars and better vacations than I do. And I get jealous for the life that I'm not getting to live, that they are. And it, it all looks really good. <laughs> the world spends a lot of money painting a picture of the good life. We see it in movies and TV. We see the adventure and the beauty and the success and the comfort. And there's a part of this that just aches for, for some of that. We've even convinced ourselves that if God would somehow bless us with those things, that we wouldn't fall into the same traps that the rich and famous do, right? We wouldn't squander it all on drugs or, or you know, end up, you know, depressed or divorced or whatever those riches and fame might bring us. And so while we've got that thing that the world is projecting on us, this vision of the good life, we then come into a church setting and we hear phrases or verses like this. Better is one day in your courts, Lord, than a thousand days elsewhere. Or like what we looked at earlier, your love is better than life. Or Jesus saying, I have come to you, may have life and have it to the full. And we hear statements like that. And it often fails to stir up even a hint of passion inside of us. John Eldridge, in his book, The Journey of Desire, describes his own struggles like this says, in this world you will have trouble. No kidding. Jesus, the master of understatement, captures in one sentence the story of our lives. He adds, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Why aren't we more encouraged? Sometimes we'll try to feel encouraged when we hear a religious passage like this, but it never really lasts. The reason is that we are all still committed to arranging for life now. Let's just be honest. Let's say one Sunday you came in and I had this just kicking message on what heaven was going to be like someday, okay? But then on the way out, one of our financial planners here, maybe Mr. Hind or Mr. Richmond, had a little pamphlet for you as you walked out the door. And on the front of that pamphlet, it said, foolproof guarantee, three easy steps to be a millionaire in 24 hours, what would you be more excited about, honestly? I, mean, I could see the phone conversation you might have that later that afternoon with somebody that missed church that day. And they're like, hey, what, was, what did Bob talk about today? What was the sermon about? And you'd be like, um, God and heaven and stuff. Uh, hey, listen, can I call you back? I'm on step two, and I'm looking at my bank account, and somehow $200,000 just appeared uh, in my account, so I've really got to go. I mean, that would be me. I'd be working the steps. You know what I'm saying? I mean, all that heaven stuff is great, but dang. I'd love to see what a million dollars might do for my circumstances right now. We have a vision for the good life, don't we? Maybe not a life that's completely without any trouble. I mean, every good story has some trouble in it. But at least kind of a Hollywood storyline where everything turns out well in the end. Here's the problem. God has a similar promise that life can turn out well in the end, but he's also just a little bit more honest about the realities along the way. He says, in this world there will be trouble. And then we know that part of it's true. We look around and we see wars and famine and divorce and abuse and neglect and disease and layoffs and debt. But he also says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he even says, you can have a relationship with me which can bring you joy and peace and hope much more than you ever imagined now 
And then you can have it perfectly in heaven with me someday. But he says, I'm not guaranteeing that your circumstances in this broken and fallen world are going to change right now. Here's what I can guarantee you. I can guarantee you that your perspective on your circumstances can change. I can guarantee you that I can give you a mindset change in terms of the people maybe that are creating some of the troubling circumstances for you. I can help you see them in a better way. I can give you a peace in the midst of those circumstances that can surpass all understanding. And while that all sounds really nice, there's a part of me that just thinks, well, just give me the million dollars and we'll see how that pans out. And then if that doesn't work out, then I'll come back and, you know, we can work on the whole piece in the midst of the understanding and blah, 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 okay? It just seems easier to find our hope in something tangible than it does to find it in relationship with God. If we're ever going to desire the one thing, intimacy with Christ over anything else this world could possibly offer us, we're going to have to have some vision, aren't we? Vision of the goodness and joy of life in the presence of the Lord. Before we'll desire that intimate life, we have to see it. Because you see, desire is the fruit or comes about from vision. And, and vision in the Christian life always begins with a clearer picture of who God really is. Not what we've heard about him or some faulty understanding we have of him, but who he really is. And a clearer picture of who we really are. Not who we want to believe we are, not who other people tell us that we are, but who we truly are. And the only way I know, or I guess the best way that I know in this life to kind of clear that mirror up a little bit so we can see things more clearly is to look at Jesus in the Gospels and to focus on him. So that's what we're going to do the next few weeks. I want you to open your Bibles today to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now I need you to open it because we're going to do some homework in here. John chapter 8, page 743. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Well, this is a story that a lot of us are familiar with. You've probably read it several times in your life, but I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do it. I'm going to ask you to just reread that story just in silence, 
And I'm going to ask you to meditate on it for a minute. And I'm going to ask you to try to, in your mind, create kind of a vivid picture of the scene, of all that's going on. What does it look like? What does it sound like? What do the faces of the crowd look like, the accusers, the woman, Jesus? What emotions are in the air? I want you to try to kind of immerse your mind into that story. You can jot down a few notes. If you want to do that along the way, I'm going to ask you kind of what you saw. And I'm going to pray for us right now that God would give us eyes to see this in a new way. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know, God, that you want us to enter into these stories and not just kind of read it as passive bystanders or observers. We know that you have something for us in here, something maybe we've never seen before. So God, we pray that you would just give us uh, vivid images, help us to feel the weight of this moment and, and all the tension and things that might be going on. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Just take a couple minutes to look at that. That was about three minutes. Might have been the first three minutes of silence reflecting you've had all week. Who knows? What did you guys see? What did you see? Yeah. 
Yeah, she was probably not dressed very appropriately, possibly. She was probably filled with shame. Everybody was staring at her. What else? Yes, Kyle. Yeah, so he's picturing just what the scene would have, could have looked like, columns and, and just kind of a beautiful setting of a church kind of setting, but, and also a dirt floor where Jesus is scribbling on the ground. What else? Well, I wonder what he's scribbling on. Yeah. I mean, was it like other laws of Moses or something like that? that because they're trying to trap him. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get him to, to go against the laws of Moses. Yeah. And so he probably turned around and started writing down different laws of Moses on the ground mm-hmm. to say, you're guilty of this too. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So he's saying that uh, they're trying to trap him about certain laws, uh, Old Testament laws. We're going to cover that here in a minute, and that maybe he's writing down some laws that he knows that they're breaking right now as he's trying to, they're trying to get her. Yeah. I think that Jesus had a little bit of an attitude here. That, you know, he's teaching the people in the court, and they come in and they're interrupting him, and that's, so he just bends down and he just starts, you know, like what, what I do sometimes in class when they're doodling or something like that, just and he gets so frustrated with him that finally that's when he just stands up and says, okay, you know, go ahead and do it, but he knew without sin cast mm. the first stone. And then, then just bends right back down and just bluffs him back out. Yeah. Good. So Dan, Dan feels the frustration that Jesus might have been feeling in that moment, being interrupted with this scene that's just kind of ridiculous. And um, Yeah, what else? Yes, Kyle again. He's on a roll. <laughs> Okay, yeah, he doesn't see the guy she committed adultery with, supposedly. Okay, that's a missing character, yeah. Yeah, just tension and fear. Uh, you know, probably women don't really, in that day, they, they really couldn't say a whole lot, and she's just kind of standing there waiting to see what's going to happen to her, you know? Maybe thinking about what it's going to feel like to have a bunch of rocks smash your body up, I mean, to be honest. Okay? Yeah? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. just the ridiculousness of the situation of knowing that everybody there is guilty of sin at some level. Um, so this story starts to come a little bit more alive, doesn't it, when we sit and we take some time to actually think about it and kind of dwell on it, meditate on it for a minute, try to put ourselves there. It takes some work. It's not handed to us in just a slick commercial or a feature-length movie that we just kind of sit back and absorb and it's kind of mindless entertainment. So let's get some context behind this encounter. We're going to bring out further some of the things you guys mentioned already. For one, the the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they'd been on the hunt to try to get Jesus for a while. They'd been trying to to catch him uh, in some breaking, some kind of, uh, you know, a law, a crime that would be punishable. And in verse 3, it says they dragged this woman 
uh, out into the crowd that had been caught uh, in adultery. And it's obvious that they want to humiliate her. I'm thinking that probably it happened the night before and they had been holding her for a while. They could have just kept her there and just came to the temple and said, hey, we've got this woman that's been caught in adultery. You know, what should happen? But no, they wanted to to bring her there to kind of force the issue. Then in verse four and five, they tell Jesus, hey, this is what the Old Testament says has to be done to somebody who's caught in this kind of situation. The only problem is, is they're leaving out a few of the facts. If you look at Leviticus 2010, this is the Old Testament law. They're kind of talking about if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And so you see that, that both people must be, must be put to death, and you see that they didn't bring the man in in this situation. Also, as I read and studied this this week, according to their oral tradition, any kind of a situation like this with adultery had to be brought to a careful trial where there was you know, witnesses that, that saw this firsthand, and then really the condemned that would have an opportunity to confess their wrong uh, and to be forgiven in this situation. And none of this happened. Which leads us to believe that this whole thing is really just a setup. It's all orchestrated. It wasn't just like randomly some of these teachers of the law were walking down the street. Oh, hey, there's some people catching adultery. Let's go take it down to Jesus tomorrow. He'll be at the temple. You know, it's, it wasn't a random event. It was very planned. What was the trap mentioned in verse 6? Well, one of those traps was that the Romans, you know, it's, it's during the time of the Roman Empire, they did not allow the Jews to, to carry out sentences of execution on their own. That had to be a Roman uh, governor that, that gave permission or some, some kind of power or authority, which is why later on in the story when they want to kill Jesus, they have to take him to the Roman governor Pilate to actually sentence him to death. So Jesus knows that if he says, yeah, let's stone her, he's going to have the Romans after him. So that's one trap that they're kind of playing out there. Secondly, if he chose to ignore this sin, then he would be guilty of disregarding the law, even though some of the facts aren't quite straight and they botch the details. So this is a tough situation for Christ. Um, and obviously a situation in how he handles it is going to tell us a lot about the nature of God as well. And then what does he do? It says he starts to doodle on the ground. And there's a lot of theory and stuff you know, that goes around about what exactly Jesus was doing at the time. I've heard all kinds of stuff. Just on a base level, I think one thing that a lot of people agree on is just that by him doing that, it kind of took the attention off the woman for a while, and everybody was just kind of watching. What is Jesus doing? Why is he writing on the ground? So it just gave her a break for a minute, okay? Um, I wish I knew, like some people said here, I wish I knew what was going on in his mind. Because I think he knows that these guys, this is all just a sham, and they're just trying to, to egg him on here a little bit. I'm sure he feels horrible for the woman, and I'm sure he feels the tension of knowing I have to do something. I can't ignore that this has gone on. I came across a very interesting verse this week that I'd never seen connected to this story that I think could shed some possible light on it. So I want you to hold your finger there, and I want you to flip to Jeremiah Way back in the Old Testament, page 540 in the Pew Bibles, Jeremiah 17. This is a prophecy about the people of Israel and what was going to happen to them because of their disobedience. In Jeremiah 17, verse 13, it's page 540. 
Verse 13 says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Now, the religious leaders of that, that day, that story we just read today, they were put to shame in the end, weren't they? And we'll get to that part of the story a little bit later. And, and it's plausible that Jesus, as he's writing in the dust, you know, he's writing their names or, or the sins or the laws that, they're, that they've forsaken. And the cool thing is, is what Jesus had just talked about right before this in John chapter 7. Flip back to that. He had just offered these people what? In John chapter 7, verse 38, he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jeremiah talks about how the people of Israel were rejecting the living water. See, the judgment they're trying to levy against this woman because of her crime is being levied against them because they've rejected this offer of the living water that Christ is, is trying to give to them. And the way Jesus handles this situation is so beautiful because what he does is he turns, he turns everything back on everybody present and he makes every single person that's there at this scene examine their own lives. He puts everybody on a level playing field. See, nobody there present is without sin except Jesus. And the only one who's perfect, the only one that can, has the right to throw the stone chooses not to. Instead, once the crowd dwindles off and Jesus is just left alone with this woman, he asks her, where did everybody go? Does nobody condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, then neither do I. But this is an important part of what he says to her. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, he understands that all of this was kind of a sham and and kind of a setup. But the reality still exists that you did commit adultery, and I can't ignore that. In fact, he knows all too well that his offer to forgive her in that moment is going to cost him dearly. In just a little while, he's going to give his life, not only for her sin, but for all of ours as well. And so his, his mercy that he shows to her that day, it's not cheap. It didn't come without a severe cost on his part. And he doesn't excuse her sin, but he does say to her, go and live a new life. You can have that if you'll just repent and own up to your actions. And for me, this is one of those passages of scripture, one of those stories that I just wish that I could see what happened on the other end. What does a person do whose whose sins have been brought out in public for everyone to see They've been accused, they've been humiliated, and then remarkably in the midst of that moment, they've been shown mercy that they don't deserve, and they've been given opportunity for a new life. What does that person do next? I mean, when when even Jesus is gone and it's just a woman, what's going through her mind in that moment? What is her desire for Christ to look like the rest of her life. You know, there's a very, very small part of me that wonders how my heart would change if on a Sunday morning, Jesus walked into this church 
And he said, I want you to watch a movie of all of Bob's worst sins for a while. And in my life and all the things that I don't want you to know about me were shown to you. And I just had to sit there and take it. And then in the midst of my shame and regret over those things, Jesus offered me forgiveness, offered me a new life if I would embrace that and come clean. A very small part. Because see, most of us live with these things in our hearts that we don't want anybody else to know about. They're tucked away in dark corners. We clean ourselves up on the outside, hoping that we won't get found out, unwilling to be naked and honest and vulnerable before God and man. And as a result of that, it hinders our ability to feel the depth of the forgiveness that God has for us. Because we'll only feel God's forgiveness at the level in which we're able to come clean with who we really are. And as long as we harbor things and, and, and we're not repentant of it and we keep it over here in the shadows, then we're limited on the depth of forgiveness that we can feel from God as well. For this woman, Jesus' love was not only better than life, it was life. Her life hung in the balance of how Jesus was going to handle the charges that were brought against her. It's the same for each one of us. And in case you guys haven't connected the dots yet, we are all that woman. Every one of us is an adulterer. We have other lovers, other idols that we love more than Christ. And God says the same thing to each one of us. He says, I, I see your sin, but I forgive you. I want to give you an offer for, for repentance and to live in a new way. And guess what? All of us are also the crowd. Every one of us sits by in indifference while injustice is going on all around us every day. And guess what? We are all also the accusers. We all point our fingers at people and we judge people and we allow our pride to be a hindrance to seeing really how broken we are. And guess what? Every one of us who has surrendered our life to Christ and can say that, you know, that we are followers of him, we, are also, we also have the opportunity to be Jesus in this story. We have a calling to be him. You see, when Jesus went to be in heaven, he said, you guys are going to be my ambassadors on this earth. You're going to represent me for all of history. And your ministry, Paul says, your ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. Your job on this earth is to go and to forgive people, to call them to a better life, to be people that bring grace and truth to those in need. Do you have a vision for that? Because you see, I think it's real easy for us to lump ourselves into those first categories of the bad people. Yes, I'm horrible. Yes, I'm, you know, all those things. But we have a really hard time seeing sometimes that we can be Jesus in this story. That that's our calling. Do we have a desire to recognize, as this quote said at the beginning that I shared 
earlier, to recognize the true crosses we are called to bear, whose weight lends to the freedom and provision of others. That we, representing Christ, could bring freedom and provision to other people. Are we growing in our understanding of the depth of the goodness of God? Are we growing in understanding of the depth of our sin, our need for Him? You see, the people who truly responded to Christ's message more than anyone, I guess at a more deep level, are those who had nothing to lose and everything to gain. Think about it. The poor, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. They had everything to gain and nothing to lose. Is our vision growing more clear today? Are we becoming more aware of the depths of Christ's love, of the depths of our need? Is it starting to awaken in us a desire for intimacy with a God who meets us at our deepest needs? Is the good news starting to sound more life-giving and more precious than anything that the world has to offer us? Before we will desire it, we have to see it. And guys, we have to take time when we look at stories like this. Because God's word isn't there for us to just read for information. We have to allow God's word to read us. To expose our sin. To show us our need. To tell us of what we're capable of, what we're called to. calling us to be light and love to other people as well. Guys, if nothing else excites you about growing in intimacy with Christ, you know what the most exciting thing for me was this week? Is the revelation as I was practicing this this morning that I could be Jesus in that story. If nothing else excites me about spending time in God's word and prayer, the idea that I could be a person who brings life to somebody else, that through my involvement in their life and their friendship, that I could forgive them and show them Christ, that I could paint a picture of a better reality for what their life would be, what they're putting their hope in. Every one of us here could be that person. Man, if that doesn't get you excited, guys, you don't know Jesus. <laughs> you don't know how exciting it is to hear that good news. When you put your hope in something, everything else... <laughs> And it's let you down, but Jesus has come in and he has transformed you and changed your heart. And if you don't want that for other people, guys, I don't know if you know Jesus. And you need to get into his word and you need to come back and keep listening. Because we're going to get into know this Savior that offers us so much. And then he says, you know what? You can be me to this world. What a privilege that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for stories like this that remind us of just how vast and unexplainable your mercy is. God, we are just so full of it, so full of ourselves, so caught up in our just selfish desires that we have no idea the depths of how much we need you. God, help us to be honest with ourselves. We're not fooling you. Help us to give permission to you to shine your light around, to clean house in our hearts, to come clean so that we can experience the depth of grace and forgiveness that you have for us, God, so that we can be alive 
not living lives of shame and regret and guilt, all those things that the enemy wants us to have. And God, call us to something new. Give us a vision. God, for what what you've said that we can be. You're ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation in this world that just desperately needs people whose hearts fully uh, at least have a desire to know you. There's so many people waiting out there that just need to hear your message of forgiveness and love and grace and truth at the same time, God. Give us a desire to be those people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.